Those of us who've loved our country and the army were terribly anxious at the continual changes in the ministry. The conflicts between the government and the Duma, the ever-increasing number of petitions and appeals addressed to the Tsar by many influential organisations, each one demanding popular control and above all the alarming rumours concerning certain persons in the Tsar's entourage. The patriots amongst the high command suffered deeply as they watched the Tsar making fatal mistakes whilst the danger grew and came ever nearer. They had mistaken fuse, they believed in them sincerely, they contemplated the possibility of a revolution for within the palace to be affected by the means of a bloodiest coup d'etat. General Kuvuk, my immediate superior, was one of those who strongly in favour of this plan. During the long discussion we had many an evening, he tried again and again to prove to me that things could, got no on, could, could not go on as what they were before. There must be a means to prevent a catastrophe, and that we ought to find men who, without a day's delay, who remove the Tsar by means of revolution from within the palace. Those are the words from General Peter Wrangel during the 1917 senior officers in the Russian army began to realise that the war against the central powers would not be won with Nicholas II as commander-in-chief. So today what we're going to be having a look at is the impact of the First World War on Russia that we are going to be examining the euphoria at the start of this um, great campaign, this great war in 1914, and to have a look at how approximately a million Russian men are dead by 1916. And it is a catastrophe. It is a humiliating statistic here as well for the Russians. And the war here, it's something that they're ill-equipped to do. So particularly in our last lesson, we were having a look at uh, the incompetence of Nicholas II, particularly in terms of political problems. How Tsar Nicholas II was unable to rule effectively. He made poor decisions that led to worsening relations with the government and increased hardship for civilians and soldiers alike. He also refused to accept any reduction in the absolute power that he had held. He was also detached from the plight of the Russian people and his policies also alienated ethnic minorities. When the Duma was recalled during the First World War, a group of Octoberists and cadets established the Progressive Bloc. This group wanted to have more control over the war. In response in 1915, Nicholas closed the Duma and this alienated many Liberals. Nicholas Iscard declared himself Commander-in-Chief of the Army in 1915 and departed for the Eastern Front to take control of operations. However, Nicholas was not well educated in the tactics of war. More so over, his absence left a weak government in Petrograd, formerly known as St. Petersburg. So just to note, like, um, because St. Petersburg is um, seen to be quite Germanic, that it changes its name to Petrograd. It's a bit like the British royal family during the First World War, how they used to be the House of Sexy Kohlberg, again, very Germanic, um, and then changed it then to the House of Windsor. So particularly when Nicholas's absent it creates a political vacuum for power search in that of the Duma and that into Petrograd itself and from this then we have the Tsarina then who is effectively the one who is then ruling Russia and you have to remember that she is a firm believer of autocrat autocracy. As the war continued the quality of effectiveness of the Russian's empire government was called into question. The departure of Nicholas II to the front left his wife, Tsarina Alexandra, in control. Alexandra was not a hugely popular figure in Russia. She was reserved and awkward in public, 
More importantly, she was a German princess and some were suspicious as to where her loyalties lay during the war. Alexandra gained increasing influence over the appointment of ministers to the government. She was determined that no member of the imperial government should ever be sufficiently strong positioned to challenge the authority of her beloved husband. She appointed less threatening, sometimes inconfident ministers to replace those who knew how to govern. As a result, members of the government tend to be increasingly weak and ineffective men. They owed their positions to winning favour with the Tsarina rather than their ability and their effectiveness. It was bad enough that Russia was at peace, but in wartime it was inevitably a disaster for the monarchy as well as for Russia itself. Now, we'll make a wee note here on Rasputin, but we'll have a proper lesson on him tomorrow. But like his influence... um is going to be very detrimental for the royal family and if you watched last hour you would have seen the the reenactment of this as well that you know we know that he is brought in as a holy monk to treat her son who is diagnosed with haemophilia and back during those days you didn't have um, a long life expectancy and he is the treasured Tsarevich the promised child they have been trying for years and have had several daughters so they want to make sure that the Romanov family then has a strong lineage that we have an heir to the throne. But from people outside, they're not aware that the boy is actually quite unwell. And particularly the Tsarina and Rasputin, they do have a close bond together, particularly something of a religious and particularly since she's a very anxious, uh, very paranoid and sometimes could be quite manic as well, that uh, she needed him by her to, in order to rest assure her here too as well. But for others in society, particularly, you know, the blue bloods, the people that are ministers, the people that are part of the royal family, they see his appearance here as a disgrace. It's, it's unacceptable. This is a, a working class man. This is someone who's from the, the lower strata of society. He should not dare intervene with the governing of um, Russia. So the imperial family was brought into disrepute as the Tsarina fell under the influence of Gregory Rasputin. Rasputin was a monk from Siberia. He was rumoured to be a part of the Kitsk, a member of an extreme underground sect that had split from the Orthodox Church. He was infamous for his drunkenness as well as womanising. However, he also gained a reputation as a healer able to perform amazing feats and miracles. Rasputin came to the attention of the royal family. In April 1907, Alexandra called him to heal her son, the Tsarevich Alexa, who was suffering from painful bleeding as a result of an injury. It was not publicly known, but Alexis suffered from blood disease, haemophilia. After Alexis recovered, Tsarina Alexandra became convinced that Rasputin could control the young boy's illness. While there was still debate over the nature of the powers over the health of Alexis, he was clear that his influence over the Tsarina was considerable. He was advised on her appointments to the government, interfered in important decisions. He could make no wrong in the eyes of Tsarina. Excuses were always made for his excessive and antisocial behaviour. To the Russian people, Rasputin symbolised everything that was wrong with the imperial government. The court and the royal family became objects of ridicule and to be despised. And particularly, you have to remember, after the October Manifesto and the set of the Duma, we now have freedom of speech. And particularly something that I'll show you tomorrow is that you're going to see almost like pornographic depictions of the Tsarina, as well as Rasputin having sexual relations. And this is something that causes a real ruckus in society that people will have to think we have to get rid of this man because he is contaminating that of the reputation of the royal family. 
Rasputin's murder by Royas at the end of 1916 came too late to undo the damage that he had caused. We also have revolutionary groups that are gaining influence. So particularly, uh, membership and influence of revolutionary groups have been severely reduced by 1914, mainly through the repressive tactics of Stolpin and the Okara. But radical opinion was not wholly defeated. Revolutionary groups survived underground and continued to attract support. Revolutionaries managed to assassinate Stolfin in 1911. Prava, the Bolshevik newspaper, was highly popular amongst the workers. Despite the Bolsheviks holding influence over many workers, Lenin had no part in bringing about the February Revolution. He believed that a revolution should be organised, not developed from an organised protest. So in 1913, we have the important anniversary. So it's the 300th anniversary of the Russian ruling Romanov dynasty. And a part of this here is that we're going to have a publication, a biography of Nicholas II. It's published at the beginning of the year and it's checked and it's approved by the Tsar to begin with. So it's published um, by a man who's a major general, Andrei Gevrich Ivriaros. And publication of the biography of a living czar was seen as some as a daring nobility because, you know, it's difficult to try to find out someone's legacy when they're still alive. This was, after all, all society was worried about the commemorative stamps bearing visages of members of the imperial family or an invitation for the grumpy post office workers to besmirch what amounted to a devotional image. But the book was also a part of hagiography too. Uh, one of the contemporary political points to make based on the rhythms of Russian history. At the commencement of each century, Russia's experienced heavy trials and disasters, he wrote in the 17th century time of troubles. The unfortunate state of the Northern Star in the 18th century, Napoleon's entry into Moscow in 1812 and Russia's defeat by Japan in 1904-5. What is the cause of these disasters, he's asked, and how, on the other hand, are we to avoid them? His answer, quite interesting from the author, is that he's instructing people trust the Tsar. Napoleon had been repulsed by acts of popular devotion by the Russian figurehead. Russians' difficulties at the beginning of the 20th century were to overcome the same way. He quotes, we see how many people were led astray into error and evil in the 1905 revolution. The courtier wrote, but as soon as the people answered the Tsar's call to unite with him, the sun shone more on the land of Russia. This was a selective reading of Russian history, but one that chimed with Nicholas's conception of the role as a national father figure. And it was one that the audience abroad translated into French by a member of the imperial family and into English by a member of the British army. So particularly we can see um, the chapters uh, are quite interesting. And something I was having to look up recently is his um, the chapter in the book entitled The Imperial Worker, which describes Nicholas's superhuman skills as a national leader. Or more basically, he attributes uh, super diligence administration in teeth. He expressed himself simply and concisely. He also writes how he has little need to refer to any document for information, writes quickly and without issues, and uses plain Russian language, avoiding long sentences and disliking foreign words. Though the Tsar's office was always strewn in documents, the work is never behind. The Tsar always knows where to find everything. Marks of Nicholas's greatness included the fact that he had sealed upon his own envelopes and was able to read the worst handwriting and knew Russia's regimental histories inside and out. A true boy Scott czar, in other words. Ministers enjoyed working for Nicholas, the author claimed, thrilling to the prospect of hearing their ideas summer, up shortly, absolutely and absolutely definitely by the supreme bureaucrat 
I like to hear the truth, the Tsar was reported to say constantly to his entourage. So quite an interesting book and it just shows you in terms of how people can write uh, in a certain way to portray him as uh, this great leader. But obviously, you know, the ministers themselves um, can record a very different reality that throughout, uh, even though he was polite, he was uh, very evasive. He, Tsar Nicholas played clumsy political games behind his minister's back. Um, he also too as well was known for his characteristic of wavering and changing um, that you know, things didn't get better with the constitutional revolution of 1905 to 6 and the creation of the legislative body, the Duma. Ultra-conservatives, including the Tsar's wife, saw the Duma as an unwelcome constraint on the Tsar's authority rather than a welcome expression of popular will. And at first, many conservatives thought it would not last and serve to consolidate not legislative reform as well. So basically, he remains as difficult as he, as ever was. And we're here and here about how that um, there's mumblings and also grumblings as well. You know, Stolfin is assassinated in 1911, causing the Tsar momentarily to consider that he had done wrong in undermining his premier. Stolfin's successor was ultimately forced out of the office in early 1914. It was given no prior warning to the Tsar, but learned of his fate from court gossip. And there really is a concern and apprehension about Rasputin's influence on the Tsar. There's, there's little evidence that Rasputin determined the specifics of policy. He was no uh, Machiavellian character, like he's not necessarily devious when it comes to pushing forward his own agenda. He's no super lobbyist at the heart of imperial government. But the danger he does pose is very different. On one hand, he's playing the Russia holy man to the wise and noble star, who he referred to himself as Papa. He encouraged Nicholas to trust in himself rather than seek the advice of others. And on the other, Rasputin's scandalous reputation risks tarnishing the imperial family. And uh, something that's quite interesting, like if you have a look at the Oquara, like they were following uh, Rasputin and it is noted in the reports in February 1913, they document Rasputin's lifestyle. And in this document that says here, on leaving the prostitutes um, at Belikin and Kovala uh, Alley, Rasputin went straight to the Govins, which is not autocrat Austrian family. In the company of some others, he left after two hours and went to the Nefersko Poskut, where he picked up again a prostitute and went with her to the baths. Around the same time, the Tsar's innocently recorded a visit of Rasputin to the imperial family at Tako Sulu at 4pm. We received good old Gregory, who stayed with us for an hour and a quarter. Against the backdrop of the festivities in 1913, which were meant to provide the Tsar's personal popularity, here was an opportunity to pr prove that the old political form of the Tsar and the church and the people still worked. But... We're going to see how things are going to tarnish that. So in 1913, the Tsar proved a great army programme. This included the increase of size of the Russian army by nearly 500,000 men, as well as an extra 11,800 officers. It is claimed that Russia that had the largest army in the world. This was made up of 115 infantry and 38 cavalry divisions. The Russian estimated manpower resource included more than 25 million men of combat age. However, Russia's poor roads and railways made the effective deployment of these soldiers difficult and Germany was confident in being able to deal with this threat. During the crisis, Sergei White forced, uh, joined forces with the Minister of the Interior and Rasputin to urge the Tsar actually not to enter into the war with Germany. Duryov, who is the Minister of the Interior, told the Tsar that war with Germany would be mutually dangerous to both countries, no matter who won. 
Witt added that there must inevitably break out of the conquered country a social revolution, which by the end of nature things was spread to the country of the victor. In the international crisis that followed with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, Nicholas II accepted the advice of his foreign minister, Sergei Zegvo, and committed Russia to supporting the Triple Entente. Scurio was of the opinion that, in the event of a war, Russia's membership of the Triple Entente would enable to make territorial gains from neighbouring countries. Sergei was especially interested in Russia taking Posen, Celsia, Galakia, and Nora Bukovina. Grand Duke Nicholas Nikovich told the Tsar, Russia, if it did not mobilise, would face the greatest dangers and a peace brought before the cowardness would unleash a revolution at home. So we have two prophetic warnings here. Here we have the Sergei Witt with the Minister of the Interior who is saying to um, the Tsar, even Rasputin as well, how it is a dangerous thing to be about. And even Witt says, you know, that because of the war, when it comes to countries losing, we're going to see revolutions break out. And on the other hand, he is taking advice from a family member, the Grand Duke here, Nikolai, who says, you know, that if Russia doesn't actually mobilise, that we could be accused of being cowards. Because remember, as a Russian star, he constantly needs to think about expansion. How is it he can actually build upon here his, um, his empire? He's constantly thinking here about the foreign policy. So when war broke out in July 1914, Russia's internal divisions were temporarily forgotten and Nicholas rode a wave of popular support. Paintings of the Tsar were carried in processions and crowds sang the national anthem. The Times correspondents wrote, For perhaps the first time since Napoleon's invasion in Russia, the people and their Tsar were one, and the strength that unity spreads in a nation stirred throughout the empire. But the enthusiasm did not last long. So on the outbreak of the First World War, we have General Alexander Santhiov, who is given command of the Russian Second Army for the invasion of East Prussia. He advanced slowly into southwestern corner of the province and the intention of linking up with General Paul von Reichenfeld, advancing from the northeast. Hindenburg and Lundendorf were sent to meet Servio's advancing troops. So those that's the Germans now meeting that with the Russians. We made contact on the 22nd of August 1914 and for six days the Russians, with their superior numbers, had few successes. However, by the 29th of August, Samfield's second army was surrounded. General Samfield attempted to retreat, but now in German cordon, most of his troops were slaughtered or captured. The Battle of Tannenberg lasted three days. Only 10,000 of the 150,000 Russian soldiers managed to escape. Shocked by the disastrous outcome of the battle, Samfield committed suicide. The Germans who lost 20,000 in the battle were able to take over 92 Russian prisoners. Now, imagine when those numbers are coming back to the cities, when this is being published, that we have lost uh, hundreds of thousands of men. Like, that statistic is quite shocking. You'd be like, what on earth went wrong in this battle? Where you have 150 Russian soldiers have been brought to the Battle of Tannenberg. Only 10,000 managed to escape. And the Germans hold 92,000 of them. And these prisoners of war are not going to survive long. And the Germans have only lost 20,000. What is happening here? Why is it that uh, we're having these disasters? On the 9th of September 1914, General von Rivekamp ordered the Romanian troops to withdraw. By the end of the month, the German army had regained all territory lost during the initial Russian onslaught. The attempted invasion of Prussia 
had cost Russia almost a quarter of a million men. By December 1914, the Russian army had 6,553,000 men. However, they only had 4,652,000 rifles. Untrained troops were ordered into the battle without adequate arms or ammunition. Untrained troops were ordered into the battle without adequate arms or ammunition. And because the Russian army had one surgeon for every 10,000 men, many wounded of its soldiers died from the wounds that they had been treated on the Western Front. With medical staff spread out across the 500-mile front, the likelihood of any Russian soldier receiving any medical treatment was close to zero. And that is a primary source there. That is a document of how bad it was. Now think about it. We have just under less than 2 million uh, rifle shortages and the fact that you only have limited surgeons as well like it's really painting a pathetic picture here for the russians but also a great level of pathos as well that a lot of these men are going to the front lines to fight for mother russia but they're not prepared for it and there's many documents when you have a look at primary sources around this time about how they didn't have proper uniforms, about how they didn't have proper footwear as well, guns. And at the end of the battle, how the Russians would have to scavenge that of the war dead to lift boots, as well as also rifles as well. So Tsar Nicholas II decided to replace the Grand Duke Nikolai on the Eastern Front. So um, if you've seen it in the last hour, it's the idea though to get that popularity, to be involved in protecting his people too as well. And he believes that it's his God-given right to as well. So he now, in 1915, is Supreme Commander of the Russian Army. He was disturbed when he received the following information from General Alexei Vershkov. In recent battles, a third of the men have no rifles. These poor devils have to wait patiently until their comrades fell before their eyes and they could pick up the weapons. The army is drowning in its own blood. On the 7th of July 1915, the Tsar wrote to his wife, Alexandra, and complained about the problems he was facing fighting the war. Again, the cursed question of shortage of artillery and rifle ammunition. It stands in the way of energetic advance. If we would have three days of serious fight, we would run out of ammunition altogether. Without new rifles, it's impossible to fill up the gaps. If we had a rest from fight without a month, our condition would greatly improve. It's understood, of course, that what I say is strictly to you for you only. Please do not report a word to anyone. So there he is reporting to his own wife and conveying his concerns. It is a very bleak picture here. In 1916, two million Russian soldiers were killed or seriously wounded, and a third of a million were taken prisoner. Millions of peasants were conscripted into the Tsar's armies, but supplies of rifles and ammunition still remained inadequate. It is estimated that one third of Russians' able body were serving in the army. The peasants were thereafter unable to work on their farms, producing the usual amount of food. By November 1916, food prices were four times as high before the war. As a result, strikes and higher wages then now become more popular and more common. So just a summary there. So no, we find out no the Russians are supposed to have the largest army and they gain some early successes uh, after fighting against the Austro-Hungarians. But there's a different story when it comes to the Germans. In August 1914, the Battle of Tannenberg and September at Missourian Lakes, the Russians took heavy losses and were driven back. They followed a long retreat throughout 1915. By the autumn of 1915, they have been forced out of Poland Lithuania and Latvia. Between May and December that year, one million Russians were killed and similar numbers were being taken prisoner. The Russians recovered during the winter of 1915 to 1916, and in the summer of 1916, General Brushkov launched a brilliant offensive which brought the Austrians to their knees and over half their army killed or captured. 
but the Germans moved troops to reinforce them and the Russians were pushed back again. The real problem for the Russians was at the top. The quality of leadership was poor with notable exceptions such as Bershoff. Many of the top officers had been appointed because of their loyalty to the Tsar. They had no experience for fighting and little military expertise. There was no clear command structure and no war plan was developed. Their performance of war industry was dire, compounded by the breakdown of the distribution system. There was a lack of supplies and equipment, especially rifles, ammunition and boots. The shortage of rifles was so bad that on parts of the front that soldiers had to rely on picking up the rifles of men who had shot in front of them. Often the war materials were available, but it does not not where they were needed. When Mikolai Rogenko, the president of the Duma, went on a special fact-finding tour, he received a lot of complaints about poor administration and the lack of basic supplies. He also found that the decision of dealing with the wounded soldiers was abysmal. So particularly uh, when he comments uh, from the front line that the army neither had the wagons nor the horses nor the first aid supplies. We visit the Warsaw station in which there were 17,000 men wounded in battle. At the station we find a terrible scene on the platform in dirt, filth and cold, in the rain and on the ground even without straw. Wounded those who filled in the air with heart-rending cries, dolefully asked, for God's sake, order them to dress our wounds for five days we have not been attended to. Now imagine how that would have resonated with him and why it is that the Duma, particularly the Liberals in the Duma, want to become more involved. Brugensko, the president of the Duma's son, was in the army told uh, of criminal incompetence and lack of cooperation in the high command. He reported the following attack on the Restro Height to his father. It was ordered by the Grand Duke who had been warned about a swamp which lay in the way, but he still ordered the advance. So his son turns around and says to his father, The troops found themselves in the swamp where many men perished. My son sank up to his armpits and was difficultly extruded. The wounded were not brought up and perished in the swamp. Our artillery fire was weak and the shells fell short and dropped amongst our own men. Nevertheless, the gallant guards fulfilled the task which they then ordered to abandon. However, the Russian army effort was not a total disaster. It sometimes has been portrayed by mostly Soviet historians. Norman Stone has pointed out by 1916 the Russians were matching the Germans in shell production and there was a thousand percent growth in the output of artillery and rifles. They had access against the Austrians and contributed significantly to the Allied victory by mounting attacks on the Eastern Front to relieve pressure on the Western Front. In 1916, Bershoff saved the French at Verdun when the Germans had to pull out 35 divisions to counter his offensive. The Eastern Front engaged in numerous numbers of German troops. Also, according to Norman Stone, the army was on the verge, not on the verge of collapse at the beginning of 1917. It was still very much a fighting force. So at home, um, so just to point out again, remember that St. Petersburg um, has changed its name because it was very much um, German sounding. So it becomes known then as uh, Petrograd, but it will eventually become Leningrad when um, Lenin um, assumes power uh, in, after 1924. Uh, so in the home frontier, we have the strain of equipping and feeding millions of soldiers proved too much for the Russian economy and revealed its structural weaknesses. Military needs had priority and the railways were barely able to cope with the freight traffic in peacetime, now were overloaded. There were bottlenecks at Moscow. The signalling system collapsed and the trains were left stranded on lines due to engine failure. Early in the war, goods and supplies were available, but the trucks ended in sidings waiting for the engines or lines to be unblocked. 
The loss of land in Poland and the West knocked out the more important of the two main lines from the northern to the southern Russia. As a result, there was a major problem moving grain from the south to the cities, and Petrograd suffered particularly. Making matters worse was the lack of grain coming onto the market. The peasants were not selling it as there was little incentive for them to do so. The government would not pay higher prices and the conversation of factories to military work meant that there was little for the peasants to buy. The production of agricultural implements was only 15% of pre-war level. Inflation compounded these problems. Russia abandoned the gold standard and started printing money to pay wages and so the government spending rose. With people desperately seeking goods in short supply, inflation kicked in. While wages more or less doubled between 1914 to 1916, the price of food and fuel quadrupled. The expansion of the workforce in factories and mines servicing military needs and the influx of refugees from German-occupied areas led to very serious overcrowding in the towns and deterioration in living standards. There was food and fuel shortages and endless queues. Petrograd suffered more than other places because of its remote from food processing areas. By 1916, it was receiving barely a third of the food and fuel it required. The shortage of food was a major source of anger, matched by the ban on vodka sales. Strikes had broken out in 1915 and they increased in number, frequently a militancy during 1916. The war took its toll in a more personal way. As the list of casualties amounted, there was hardly any family who had not been affected by their son being killed or captured. The support for the Tsar enjoyed at the beginning of the war faded away as the military defeats piled up. As in 1905, confidence in the government evaporated as its competence and inability to effectively organise supplies for the military at the front and people in the cities became apparent. The Zanesta and Mulpitsmides started forming their own bodies to provide medical care, hospitals and hospital trains for the thousands of wounded soldiers. These bodies eventually united to form one organisation, the Semgor, which is spelled Z-E-M-G-O-R. They went on to supply uniforms, boots and tents, progressional groups and businessmen formed the War Industries Committees to shift factories over to military production. Leading Liberals played an important role in the non-governmental organisations that seemed to offer an alternative, a much more effective form of government. So even when these organisations were fully supportive of the war, the autocracy regarded them with suspicion and would not cooperate with them. The Tsarina in particular saw them as revolutionary bodies undermining the autocracy and indeed they did act as a focus for criticism for the bureaucracy's feelings. The Tsar was pressured into reconvening the Duma in July 1915. Progressive elements in the Duma, about two-thirds of the total deputies, formed the Progressive Bloc. They wished to fully involved in the war effort and wanted to prevent the country slipping into revolution and anarchy, which frightened them as much as anyone else. The Bloc called for the Ministry of National Confidence, in which elected members of the Duma would replace incompetent ministers to form a new government. This offered a real chance for the Tsar to be seen to be working with the people and offload some of the responsibility for the war. But the Tsar would not countenance it and suspended the Duma, which only met again briefly in 1916 and 1917. So it means then basically that anytime things are going wrong, well, who is the finger of blame? It's going to be the Tsar and the Tsarina. The Bloc became frustrated by his intransigence. In November 1916, Mirko, the cadet leader, made a speech listening, listing the government's shortcomings around the questions, is this stupidity or treason? He also declared that the Duma would go on to fight the government with all legitimate means until you go. So his speech here in November 1916, uh, he goes on to say that we now see that we have no more legitimate with the government and we can leave Russia to victory with it. 
When the Duma declares again and again that the home front must be organised for a successful war and the government continues to insist to organise the country means to organise revolution and constantly chooses chaos and integration, is this stupidity or treason? We have many reasons for this discontent with this government, but all the reasons boil down to one general one, the incompetence and evil intentions of the present government, and therefore in the name of the millions of victims that spill blood, we shall fight until we get a responsible government which is agreement with the general principles of our own programme. Cabinet members must agree unanimously as the most urgent task. They must agree and be prepared to implement the programme of the Duma. A cabinet which does not satisfy these conditions does not deserve the confidence of the Duma and should go. And it's recorded here that there is lots of voices saying bravo and there's a long and very prolonged applause. In August 1915, the Tsar made a huge mistake. He decided to take direct control of the army and went off to military headquarters in Milkvolk, 600 kilometres from Petrograd. This had a number of serious consequences for him. One, he now was personally responsible for the conduct of the war. If things went badly, he would be directly to blame. He could not pass it off to the responsibility of his generals. Two, he was away from Petrograd for long times a period, leaving the Tsarina and Rasputin in control of the government. Lovey, she wrote to her husband, I am here, don't laugh at silly old wifey, but she has trousers on, on scene. This created chronic instability in the government. There was constant changes of ministers and a game of ministerial leapfrog in which the head and of the Tsarina can be detected. So particularly um, from September 1915 to February 1917, there are four changes in Prime Minister, five changes in the Ministers of the Interior Affairs, three changes in Minister of Foreign Affairs, three changes in Ministers of War, three changes in Minister of Transport and four changes in Minister of Agriculture. So you can imagine in terms of chaotic, things really aren't going to happen, new initiatives are not going to be pushed forward. It's going to be very much stalemate in the government. Competent people were dismissed. For instance, War Minister Pegaro was rebuilding the army and supply system with some success after disasters in 1915 was discharged. The Tsarina regarded him as a traitor and a revolutionist because of his willingness to work with the Zemmour and also the working committees. Incompetent people were important because they were flattered the Tsarina or because they recommended by Rasputin. The appointment of Sturmer as Prime Minister in February 1916 caused great disquiet. Not only was he incompetent and dishonoured, but he also had a German name. And this is why a lot of people would say, you know, is she a spy? Like, where's her loyalties lie? It was not surprised by the end of 1916 that support for the Tsar was hemorrhaging fast. All classes in society were disillusioned by the way the government was running the war since the Tsar embodied the government and had taken great direct control of the armed forces. It was towards him and the finger of responsibility was pointed. The governing elite was in disarray and even some of the nobility were supporting the progressive bloc in the Duma. People were talking about an impending revolution. The situation in Petrograd was becoming tense. A secret police report at the end of 1916 said that the workers in Petrograd were on the verge of despair, with the cost of living having risen 300%, food almost unattainable and long queues outside most shops. The secret police reported a rising death rate due to inadequate diet, unsanitary and cold lodgings and a mass of industrial workers quite ready to let themselves go to the wildest excesses of a hunger strike. So when we come to think about, you know, how is it the First World War contributed then to the Tsar's um, downfall? So first of all, we've got military failures. So we'll have heavy defeats and huge numbers of Russians killed in 1914 and 1915. 
and it's a disillusionment and anger about the way the Tsar and the government were conducting the war. Losing a war is always a bad thing for the government. In April 1915, the Tsar assumed command of the army and went to the front to take personal charge. And from then, he was held personally responsible for the defeats. And the thing is, when it comes to Tsar Nicholas II, when you think of a monarch, when you think, for example, of someone like Churchill um, during the Second War meeting troops, he has an aura, he has a presence. Nicholas doesn't have that. He's actually quite shy. And when he's meeting soldiers and officers, they really did comment about how they weren't impressed by his personal presence. There's difficult working conditions. This war caused acute distress in large cities, particularly Petrograd and Moscow. Disruption of supplies meant that the food, goods and raw material were in short supply. Hundreds of factories closed and thousands were put out of work. Prices rocketed and inflation was rampant. Lack of fuel meant that the people were cold as well as hungry. Urban workers became very hostile towards the Tsarist government. In the countryside, the peasants became increasingly angry about the conscription of all young men who seldom returned from the front. In the terms of the rule of Tsarina and Rasputin, the Tsar made the mistake of leaving his wife, the Tsarina Alexandra, and the monk Rasputin in charge of the government while he went to the front. They were made a terrible mess of running the country, dismissing able ministers in favour of her friends or totally performed poorly. Ministers were changed frequently and as a result, the situation in the cities deteriorated rapidly with food and fuel in short supply. The Tsarina and Rasputin became totally discredited. The open and ridicule they generated, cartoons were circulated showing them in bed together, also tainted the Tsar who was blamed for putting them in charge. The higher echelons of society, army and generals, became disenchanted with the Tsar's leadership and support for him emerged away. By the beginning of 1917, few were prepared to defend him. Also is the failure to make political reforms. During the war, the Tsar might have had a chance to make some concessions to political reform, which might have saved him. Russia could have slipped into constitutional monarchy and the pressure would have been taken off him personally. The Duma was fully behind the Tsar in fighting the war. A group called the Progressive Bloc emerged which suggested that the Tsars established a government of public confidence, which really meant letting them run the country. However, the Tsar rejected their approach. He opted to retain autocracy and there was going to be a price to pay for it. So you can really see here that the war brings terrible suffering for soldiers and civilians alike. Best estimates say that almost 2 million Russian soldiers were killed. A similar number of civilians also perished. Morale during this time was very low and the myth of the army as the Russian steamroller had quickly vanished. The Russian people looked for someone to hold account for their suffering. In 1915, the Tsar had declared himself commander-in-chief of the army and this made him a suitable target. World War I was a complete disaster for Russia. The Russian army suffered defeat after defeat in the hands of Germany. In 1914, the Russians invaded eastern Germany with two large armies. They were completely rooted by the smaller German forces at the Battle of Tannenberg at Missouri Lakes. In 1915, Germany pulled the full weight of its power against Russia and launched a series of onslaughts, including the Goros, Tanov Offensive and the Second Battle of Missouri Lakes. The Germans and Austrians unified their command and were able to successfully route the Russian forces who lacked modern weaponry or enough supplies. The Russians were forced to retreat. Large areas of Russian territory, including Lithuania and Poland, were overrun. In 1916, for a time, the Russians achieved victory against the Germans and Austrians and regained some territory. However, the gains were minimal and Russia suffered heavy defeats later on in that year. So Nicholas II may have believed that by taking charge, his army would be inspired and they would fight with renewed vigour in 1915. So remember, he leaves St Petersburg and he's moving to the army headquarters in Russian Poland. Unfortunately, the Tsar knew little about command and organisation of a large military forces. The series of defeats and humiliations continued. The organisation of Russian army deteriorated and there was massive shortages on ammunition, equipment, 
and medical supplies. Nicholas II's decision to take charge meant that he was increasingly seen by Russian people as having personal responsibility for the military disasters inflicted on Russia. So particularly, you know, there is so many problems in terms of politics, but also problems on the economy as well. For example, like an industry, the Russian industry moved into crisis during the war. Vital raw materials from overseas could no longer reach Russia. This resulted in shortages of raw materials and finished goods. The army faced major shortages of supplies and weapons. In terms of transport, they have the underfell railway system. Uh, it was taken over by the government to be used primarily for the war effort. It had to cope with the pressures of moving large quantities of troops and supplies to the battlefronts. This made it difficult to keep the city supplied with food. Agriculture methods remained backward and still relied on many peasants being able to work the land. Millions of, of peasant farmers were constricted into the army and this led to a major shortage of manpower on the farms and corresponding fall in production. There was a serious shortage of food in the city shops. The price of even the most basic foods was rising steeply. In 1916, inflation has then risen to that of 300%. The value of the ruble had fallen significantly and the price of goods was soaring. This made life increasingly difficult, particularly for that of the poor people here as well. So what we're going to then start to have a look at um, over the course of this week is the role of uh, Rasputin and then to start to have a look at the February Revolution and see about how, you know, is it a, a revolution or is it here in terms of having a look at a popular revolution, uh, a revolution from below here as well. So we're going to be starting to have a look at the February Revolution on Wednesday and tomorrow we'll have a look at Rasputin. So do make sure you watch the documentary, do have a look at the excerpt on uh, education platform that I loaded up on Friday. There is notes on the First World War there. Um, I'll upload the PowerPoint and a document that really looks at the economic um the impact on the economy, sorry, during the Russian home front from 1914 uh, up until 1922. Something just to read through and have a look up until there of 1918. So that is Russia and the Great War and the impact that it caused. And you can see here we have a domino effect. There's no turning back from this now. And it is inevitable that something here is going to take place.